going to go back a little bit to verse 11. I'm going to start in verse 11. I know it says 14 in the bulletin. That was my error. I told Ashley the wrong number. Let's pray for the Spirit's guidance before we open his, his word. Our Lord and our God, as we open your book of life, I just pray that you give us ears to hear what you'd have us to take away from this message, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit works in us to transform us into what you would have us to be. Lord, I pray that I do represent you properly. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 16, starting in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You may be seated. You know, we're coming again now. This is the, the secondary, second missionary journey of Paul. And we've seen how, how God has been faithful to Paul by supplying him companions, co-workers. Barnabas took a different calling. They had a falling out or separation. But God brought Timothy into his life, and Silas, and even Luke is now walking with them. So it's a good lesson for us, you know. We may think that somebody leaving a church or leaving our company is going to cripple us as a believer or as a work that we're trying to do. But God has people in the wings coming up, and he will supply worthy workers to walk alongside of us, just like he's, he has done with Paul. And, you know, our God is faithful. But also we see the Holy Spirit has closed some areas off to Paul, where Paul is planning to go somewhere, and it, it says the Holy Spirit blocked him. The Holy Spirit prevented Paul to go into these areas. And I think this is one of the greatest, greatest challenges for us as believers discerning when it is the Holy Spirit shutting a door or Satan showing us resistance. Because what do we see here? We see where Paul goes, where he does get to go. What happens to him? He starts something and then they beat him up. They throw him in jail. They stone him. So he could, you know, he could easily say, I'm meeting resistance, so God's shutting this door. But in many cases, Satan will try to prevent any work of God. And it's a difficult, difficult task for believers to determine whether it is the Holy Spirit closing a door, closing a door for a season, closing a witness against a loved one for, that we care about, 
or if that resistance is Satan, that we're having some sort of success, that we're making a headway. And I think the only way, you know, Paul had it made. I mean, the Holy Spirit told him, you know, I want you over in Philippi, head over there, you know. But, you know, God normally doesn't work in miraculous ways nowadays. He will, he can. But usually it's through the multitude of counselors there is great wisdom. It's by being open, the talking to people, the saying and explaining what work we want to do as a believer or who we're working with and being open. And God will provide that wisdom, that discernment, things we may, may have overlooked. But we, the biggest thing is, if one door is closed, we must always look for another opportunity, another door. And God will direct those doors for us. He will open paths for us to witness. He will open paths of ministry. And if it's a path of ministry, it must be according to God's word, not some far-fetched thing to try and trick people into the church. I mean, if we build a labyrinth in this sanctuary, I'm leaving. Maybe you don't know what a labyrinth is, but it's an Eastern spiritual worship wheel you walk around. And some churches put them in. So we have to look for the clear path, open door, and be able to redirect our plans to go according to God's plan. And that's a good idea. That's what Paul does. And this bowing to God's leading, it brings Paul to Philippi, a leading city of Macedonia. And a little, little history on this city of Philippi. It was named after King Philip of Macedon. You know, he fought a major battle there and won. So he thought, well, this would be a nice place for a garrison. So he reinforced it. And then later on in B.C. 42, Mark Anthony and Octavius fought a battle there. There was a struggle between who was the rightful ruler of the Roman Empire. They fought against uh, Brutus and Cassius. And... Octavius and Mark Anthony, they prevailed. And this led for the open door of Octavius to become the Roman emperor. We know him as Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. But Octavius, he fortified the city even more and he declared it a Roman colony. What he said is, this is under Roman rule. And he had a Roman garrison there. But it was important, Roman rules. Certain laws had to be followed because they were under the Roman legal system. And it appears there was no synagogue there, so when Paul wanted to start something, he looked around, looked for the opening door. And there were people who believed God, who feared God, in a limited manner, they were probably proselytes to Judaism. But they didn't have the saving faith. So Paul looked where they met, and they met for prayer. And usually they met along water because it would follow some of the Jewish customs that would require some ceremonial washing. So as we look at our verses as we start, that's where we're at. You know, Paul's following God's command. He goes to Philippi because other things have been closed. And this is an unlikely place to start a church. No synagogue. 
Remember, Paul has been preaching and going to the synagogues week in and week out. But this is a Roman garrison, a Roman town. But our God was preparing the hearts of men and women there. If our God leads us to a difficult task, he will be there for us. So in verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Again, Paul and his companions are looking for opportunities where to witness, and where better to start than people who believe in God, even if it is a superficial faith, not a complete faith, not a saving faith. But this leads them to Lydia. And she ran a business selling very expensive commodity, purple goods. That's the color of royalty. And the dye they used came from a shellfish, and there was a tiny amount in each shellfish, so it took a lot of work, a lot of effort to get this purple dye. That's why it was used for the wealthy people, the ruling officials, the magistrates. magistrates. And there was a saying that, you know, when somebody improved in their wealth or improved in their status, they said, well, they came into the purple. You see? Yeah. They came into the purple. They came into wealth. But I think the reason why this is added is they wanted you to realize that Lydia was a person of means. She was a wealthy businessman, businesswoman. She went to Philippi. Probably the business was better there. I think Thyra Tyre was like 50 miles away. So they moved. But there's also one other important truth in these verses for us. Now, these people, she was worshiping along with these others. They believed in God. Again, they had limited knowledge. They had not heard the gospel message. She knew in her heart God existed. You know, and God puts that in all of us. It tells us in Romans we suppress the truth. But here they were actively seeking God, seeking the true God. And our God was faithful. He supplied them, Paul, to give them the message, the gospel message. So they heard the gospel message. They were seeking God. But you know what? That is not enough for anyone to be saved. Seeking God, hearing the gospel message is not enough to be saved. In verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Saints, if our Lord does not open the hearts of people to accept the message, the gospel message, the seeds of the gospel message will fall on hard grounds. How many people did Jesus preach to, and I think he knew the gospel message fairly well, did not receive that gospel message? Rejected it. It's because the Holy Spirit did not open the heart. 
We can plant, we can water, God gives the increase. We better know where we stand. We can't take credit for anyone being saved. We can plant and we can water. The Lord opens the hearts. And God did give the increase. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged just saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now remember, Paul was kind of stubborn. He didn't like burdening anybody. He was a tent maker at times. But he always said, you know, I didn't burden you guys when I was giving you the gospel. He didn't want to go to Lydia's house. He didn't want to be a burden. But this woman, I believe, was a woman of means. And she prevailed over him. She insisted. No, you're going to stay with me. I'm going to provide for you. I'll provide your meals. And I'll provide your base for going out and do this missionary work. I believe this was the start of the church in Philippi, which we read about later on in the scriptures. And we see here a pattern. A pattern of how churches are started. And it's a pattern toward today as well. God prepares the hearts He prepares the hearts of those that are seeking him. And missionaries come and they find them. They're converted. They share the good news. The hearts are open to receive it. Lives are changed. Hearts are changed. Their business, instead of their stress being on their business, it's on how can I build the church? How can I be a service to God and his kingdom? And then the church forms and it grows. They get elders and deacons. But somewhere along the line, something else comes that produces hostility against the newfound work. Satan is always, always at the door watching and willing to come in and try to stop any work of God. Whether it's with our neighbor on an individual basis or as a mission work in a faraway land, as soon as God sees some progress in there, Satan will be there trying to malign the truth, try to bring in false prophets, try to belittle and stop the work in progress. Expect it. Expect it. In verse 16, that's exactly what we see. As we are going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Here we see Satan had a great claim on this area of Macedonia. This slave girl had the power of telling the future. And apparently she had a measure of success because it says they brought great gain, which means many people went to her. Many people were caught up into this sinful practice of trying to have their fortunes told. Breaking God's laws. We're told many customers much gain to their handlers. You know, what's amazing is that this demon, just like the demons when they saw Jesus, knew exactly what Paul and his companions were up to and who they were. You are the sons of the, you know, the demon said to Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. And here you're the disciples of the son of the most high God. But Jesus silenced the demon at that time because these demons speaking through these people were not giving praise. You know, let's look at it. Verse 17. She followed, okay, she followed 
Paul, and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. You know, if I lived in that time, I don't think I'd want to make Paul greatly annoyed. But this servant girl was badgering them, belittling them, trying to mock the gospel of Jesus Christ in a scornful scornful matter, and Paul silenced her. But now what? Here are these guys who are making a killing off of this woman. They lost their income. Their great gain is gone. And the people are hacked off. Who are they going to go to now? One of these lesser soothsayers that, that aren't as accurate? You know, the hearts of the wicked do what they do best then. They lie, they deceive, they try to get revenge. Or perhaps they were trying to hope, or hope to, that Paul would restore this demon back into this young girl. Verse 19, but when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. Again, you notice the progression of the wicked. They don't even mention the fact that Paul had performed an exorcism on this young girl, saving her from a life of misery with this demon living in her. That's not even brought up. They just do general accusations. General accusations. Nothing specific. Nothing you can really put your hand on. These men... They're Jews, and they are disturbing the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans. But the key here is they had one big good chip in their hand, in their favor, and that is the crowd joined in attacking them. The crowd joined in attacking them. And this is critical. Because for evil to thrive, there has to be Some of the governed who want it or allow it or go along with every false accusation or any false lie that is promoted. Stalin or uh, one of the other dictators called them useful idiots. I'm not going to go there. I'll just say that they're uh, ignorant minions. But they go along with the lies. And when you have a certain member or a certain amount of the population that go along with lies, it emboldens tyrants. It emboldens them. The governing officials know they can prevail if they have a certain amount of these ignorant minions walking alongside them, beating the same drum. 
And that is always throughout history the truth. For these wicked tyrants, wicked governors, wicked ruling officials to thrive, they must have some of the ruled going along with their lies, promoting their lies, backing their lies. And that's what we have here. An emotionally charged crowd. And many times this crowd will go against godly principles, opening the door for tyranny. Remember, this is a Roman-run city, resulting in laws and procedures that had to be followed when somebody was accused of a crime. These rules and regulations were mandated to be followed. We see no trial. You know, Paul and his companions appear to not even give a chance to say what they want, to stand up. They're immediately punished without a trial, thrown in jail, stripped. But you know what? You can just see in the minds of these tyrannical leaders who are supposed to follow the law. Well, here we got these strangers coming into the city, these nobodies, these Jews, and the crowd's against them. Who's going to care if we beat the snot out of them and throw them in prison? Nobody's even going to notice. But that is exactly why laws are in place. It's to protect the person who cannot protect themselves. It's to protect the alien in the land. It's to protect the little guy in the land. So laws must be followed. That's why we have such loud laws. Let's go to verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrate tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Do you see any trial? No. You had to have a trial in Rome. You couldn't just say, okay, let's beat them up and throw them in prison. It's tyranny. They're going against the laws in place. They secured their feet in stocks. That's for two purposes. One, it makes them more secure. You've seen the pictures of the Puritans and that, where they have them in stocks, you know, and then their feet are sticking through. And the second thing, it's a form of torture. You're thrown in there all night with your feet sticking through a little hole through those boards. Every time you move, it chafes your feet a little more and more, your ankles. Pretty soon it's rubbed raw and bleeding. You can't get a decent position to sleep in. It's a form of torture. You know, this must have seemed like an impossible situation for Paul and his companions. If it was me, I'd probably be sitting there wringing my hands, going, woe is me. Is that what we see? No. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were praising God. Amazing. Again, it's definitely a lesson I need to work on. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This was no small earthquake. God intervenes. This shook the building, the town, and the area. And the locks were miraculously opened. The stocks were miraculously opened. 
If men were hung by chains, they were opened. Doors were opened. We have to understand a little bit of Roman history here again, so a little lesson in history again. You know, if a Roman, according to Roman law, if this jailer who's in charge would lose a prisoner, he would be punished what that prisoner was going to be punished. So if it was a capital offense and that prisoner escaped, the jailer would be killed. Now, if all these prisoners escaped, he would have to take every penalty of every one of these prisoners. It would be laid on him. So this guy's future was not looking good at this time. At best, life in prison. At worst, being beaten with rods for how many different prisoners that were sentenced to be beaten with rods. So it's probably a life-threatening thing. So another thing in Roman culture was that if you were in charge and you failed in your duty to Rome, the honorable thing was to kill yourself. To fall on your sword, which was an admission of guilt, but taking the punishment upon yourself, it was a way of get restoring some of your honor, and that is what we see with this guy. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, a Roman sword was not one of these great big long things that you see at the Renaissance fairs. It was a short sword, about that long. Their main defense was a shield, and then they'd just swing that sword around, and they were in close combat all the time, so a big one didn't, wouldn't do them much good. So what they would do if they're going to kill themselves, they'd take the sword, put it on their heart, go like that, and fall forward, thus driving the sword through their heart. And that's what this jailer was about to do. What would have happened if he would have done that? He'd be lost for all eternity. In that instant, he would be gone to hell. A non-believer. An honorable Roman, but a non-believer. But our God intervenes. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now again, God has written his laws on our hearts. Men know instinctively that we are not right with God. Many suppress the truth. But perhaps this guy heard the message from Paul and his companions, the gospel message. But we do know he cries out, what must I do to be saved? Perhaps it was God or these, the earthquake and the prisoners where he was looking at death that he sought the truth, how to be saved. But we know the correct answer is, is that God used these circumstances to open this man's heart. And Paul gives them one way to God. One way to God. One religion, one way to God. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. So not only does he want to be saved, he wants all of his household to be saved as well. He wants them to hear the words of the Lord. And it appears that this prison house was probably part of the prison where he stayed. And we know that this guy was truly saved because we see a change in his life, a change in his actions. Now, I don't know if this guy was part of the ones who beat Paul and his companions or if he was someone separate who just kind of stood by on, you know, another beating, big deal. But what does he do? And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. A complete transformation. He washes their wounds, he feeds them, takes care of them, and is rejoicing of the things of God. Now, I know these verses scream out concerning baptism and the controversy there, but I'm avoiding that. And I'm not going down that road, maybe some other sermon. But, you know, what a mighty God we serve. He saved this man, and now he is working on his whole household. And seconds earlier, this guy was about to kill himself. We serve an amazing God. Now, you think this story would end, but it doesn't because, you know, we still have these magistrates that threw him in jail. So what are they going to do now? Well, but when, the, when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, ah, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. You know, just keep it covered up. You know, we broke a bunch of laws and that just, you know, go on. Paul wouldn't have nothing to do about it with that. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly. No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Whoops. Now, I don't know what would happen if these magistrates did these unjust things, if they would have to be beaten if Paul pushed it or what. But clearly, they were afraid. They broke the law. They were acting tyrannical. And they wanted to keep it in the dark. Just, you know, go your way now. We beat the hell out of you. You know, it's all right. You know, we'll just keep it quiet. Just leave. And for most people, they would. Because Paul would have to address these tyrants again. And these tyrants might decide, well, let's quiet this way by just killing them. You never know how a tyrant will act. Here, so they came and apologized them. And they took them out and asked them, oh, please leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is a demonstration for all believers what Paul did. 
This is how you deal with tyrants. You do not let them get away with their sin. You do not let them get away with their law-breaking. You confront them. If you do not confront them, they will continue doing law-breaking. They will continue in the pursuit of evil. Paul risked the health and maybe in his life to confront these tyrants. You broke the law. You treated us unjustly. We are not going to walk away quietly. We as Christians must, must stand up for our rights in this nation. We must stand up for our God-given freedoms. We live in a culture today that is full of lies, misnomers, misleading, and a news media that is a flat-out, I don't know why anybody would even listen to them. How many years did we hear Trump collusion? All a lie. Proved to be a lie. And I'm even going to touch base on the trial we're seeing now in Kenosha. What have we heard for the last year? A 17-year-old white supremacist, racist, who might have wore a Trump hat, crossed the Illinois border with his gun to shoot innocent protesters. Many of the ruling officials, the same thing. A 17-year-old crossed and heard there was protest, went over, decided to shoot protesters. And they wanted to railroad this guy, just like Paul was railroaded, and throw him in prison for life. But, you know, there's always a little bit of element of truth. Yeah, he was 17-year-old, he had a gun. Big deal. Big deal. My kids have had guns since they were 12. World War II, how many people 17 years old had a gun and fought? More in the First World War. In the Revolutionary War, many of the soldiers were 14. And they had a gun and they fought. You know why? Because they were men. They were raised to be men, to stand up for truth, to risk their lives, instead of go through a life playing video games or some crap like that. Yeah, he was 17-year-olds, and he crossed the Illinois line. Kenosha is 20 miles from his home. And you know why they crossed the Illinois line? Because the civil magistrates didn't do their job. They told the police to stand down, and they let these peaceful or peaceful uh, protesters do $70 million worth of damage to Kenosha. And they were ordered, to, the rank and file police were ordered to stay at arm's distance. Don't get in their way, let them do it. And after a couple days of destruction, the business owners cried out, will anybody come and help to protect our businesses? And 200 armed citizens who cared about their neighbors showed up with their AR guns and said, yeah, we'll stand in the gap. And Kyle was one of them. And he was not the aggressor, thankfully, for all the videos. Because what you see, he was trying to run away, tried to avoid conflict. And the only time he defended himself is when they had him cornered and pinned and down, trying to do him harm. And from many officials what have seen of this bogus trial have said, he never even should have been charged. But you know what? The magistrates have a portion of the crowd. 
who are saying, hang this guy, he's got a gun. He's doing what all of us should do. Love our neighbor as ourselves and protect our neighbor's rights when the magistrates back down. You know what happened? After this, when these 200 people showed up, the next day, these peaceful protesters, like the cockroaches that they are, slithered away. Gone. No more buildings burned. No more looting. $80 million worth of damage, and we have reporters saying it's a peaceful protest. We're not supposed to believe our own eyes as we see the buildings burning. Tyrants must be confronted. You know, in World War II, Chamberlain, he tried to negotiate with Hitler as Hitler's gobbling up the countries around him. And Churchill had it right. He said, you do not negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. Kyle's head is in the tiger's mouth. It's time for action. And if we step back as people of this country and let the tiger eat him, who's the tiger going to eat next? Do you really think it won't be time when it's our daughters, our children, our wives, our church, our pastors that these tyrants won't come after? They have to be confronted and stopped. Just like Paul said, no way, you're not brushing this under the rug. You are breaking the law. Evil must be exposed, and the only ones who are designed to expose that evil is us, the saints of Jesus Christ. And that's why we must have discernment. We must teach ourselves discernment and discipline, but also to be truth bearers and to stand up for our neighbor. Because if we don't stand up for him, who will? There is no politician riding in with a white horse to save us. God is our king. We are his warriors. Let us act like it. Let us act like it. Let us act like those 200 men and said no more burning. And now these peaceful protesters might be coming back. So they have 500 guardsmen down there. Why would you have 500 guardsmen down there if they're peaceful protesters? You see what a lie it is? They're rioters. They're looters. They're thugs. They're the scum of the earth, praying on a place where it is told not to defend it. What a pathetic bat of, of civil magistrates down there in Kenosha. How would you feel if you had a business down there? Would you feel secure and safe? We are responsible for our neighbors' safekeeping. That tiger will continue feeding until it's stopped. And if we think it won't feed on one of us or one of our friends or one of our loved ones, we're sadly mistaken because history shows it completely different. Tyrants must be confronted and stopped prayerfully with the laws that are available to us to avoid physical conflict. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, is. let's take an example from Paul. We must put our lives, our property, and our well-being on the line for your sake, for justice, for truth. Lord, you are the giver of liberty. You are the giver of freedom. And Lord, thankfully, this, this church's history is based on civil unrest in Holland. 
They confronted and fought against the tyrant of the day. And yes, there were casualties. There were imprisonments. There was property seized. But the church blossomed here in America because they would not tolerate the tyrant in Holland. Teach us to be such a people that our children and our children's children say we stood up against the tyrants of the day. We stood up for God's truth. And Lord, we must stand with the truth, whoever has their head in the tiger's mouth. And we must defend them if they're innocent. Call the tyrants what they are. And Lord, yes, it may mean harm to us. But eventually the harm will come if we sit by and do nothing. Teach us to be such a church. Teach us to raise our children to be men and women who take life seriously and realize that they are in a battle. That freedom must be defended. I pray that the church of Jesus Christ rises up like it did against England when it was called the Black Regiment because so many pastors led their parishioners or their members into battle. Lord, give us the wisdom and discernment to follow you. And mostly, Lord, let us be truth bearers in this time of lies and deception. Give us that wisdom and that guidance. Amen. Our offering will be.